1: Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. I am your host, Todd Pruitt, and my two little helpers are with me, as usual, Carl Truman and Amy Bird. And uh, we want to talk about a topic of doctrine which is sadly uh, neglected and to our, our detriment. Now, before we get into the meat of the subject, though, and before I introduce the subject itself, one of the things that I may do just In terms of helping our our listeners to think deeply, helping our listeners to grapple with some very thoughtful subjects and to process them in in a way that is intelligent. I want to throw out every once in a while just what I consider a helpful quote from Amy Bird. One that I found, which I was tremendously helped by, is, quote, Good brokenness drives out bad brokenness. Um, That's I, so isn't true. That good? Isn't that good? So true. Amy, so all true. I can say Plagiarism. is... Plagiarism. All I can say is thank you for writing that, Amy.
2: Um, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, Have so, you noticed this? Uh-huh. There was this thing about Adele the other week that if you slowed her songs down, Uh she sounded just like some some guy singing. I saw that. If you read Amy Bird's works slowly, Mm -hmm. it sounds just like Anne Voskamp's poetry. Interesting.
1: I'm wondering Hmm. if they're
3: actually one and the same
1: Maybe
2: we should start a movement.
1: I think I think we are on to something here. Well, obviously... You never see them in the
3: same room together. You never That's see all them I'll in say. the same That's room
1: together, say. exactly, and I think that this My is something... My husband is not the farmer. He is the teacher. I think this is something that merits further investigation, and I can promise our listeners that we will be on that. Revisiting it repeatedly. Repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, now to, uh, to, to leave the uh, ridiculous and go to the sublime, we would like to take a few moments and reflect on... The doctrine of personhood or the doctrine of of humanity, what the Bible teaches us about what it means to be man and woman in the image of God. And one of the reasons why these are necessary discussions right now is precisely because there is so much confusion about what it means to be a person. We can apply this to so many different topics right now when you look at the confusion over gender, over sexuality, some of the disagreements and and divisions in terms of our discussions on race that are going on right now would be helped tremendously if we could think deeply and biblically about what it means to be uh, a person. And so, Carl and Amy, help us kind of move forward a little bit in our discussion here. What are we saying when we talk about biblical anthropology or a biblical doctrine of personhood or mankind?
3: Well, I think, first of all, it might be useful to to think about how the West typically thinks of personhood mm-hmm. today, so we can then contrast it with what the Bible teaches. And it's a truism that really, since, the, since at least the 18th century, with the work of a philosopher like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that... Personhood, what it is to be a human being, has been seen to be essentially a social construct, Mm -hmm. that human nature is something infinitely malleable, uh, made by society rather than something intrinsic to a human being as they are a human being. And much of this was… In Freud as well, which was yeah, hugely well, influential. Most modern thinkers, to some extent, look back to Rousseau in his mm-hmm. first and second discourse on this. I mean, Marx mm-hmm. has his own right. particular strand in it. Freud was an admirer of Rousseau and yeah. certainly sees personhood as the result of the civilizing forces of society. Mm-hmm. Freud has a somewhat ambivalent relationship to that. He sees it as both a good and a bad thing, a, a fulfilling thing and a frustrating mm-hmm. thing simultaneously. So I think the first thing that we need to realize today is that's deeply embedded Mm -hmm. In society, the idea that human nature is a construct and has no transcendent intrinsic reality in and of itself is an absolute truism today. I think we need to understand that because that is the message that's being pressed on us from all cultural avenues. Now, you draw that by way of contrast with what Scripture teaches. What does Scripture teach? We are made in the image of God. There is something transcendent. That scripture ascribes to being a human person. Being made in the image of God is not a social construct. Mm -hmm. It is a biblical and theological claim that transcends particular societies and Mm -hmm. cultures. So that, I think, is where where the rub lies for us. And you see the, the extreme manifestations in our culture really are found in the sexual revolution right most obviously today in transgenderism Mm -hmm. Uh, who am i i am whoever i think i am on the inside it's a little more complicated than that because the range of options that you're allowed to think is socially determined but the idea that my identity is given to me with some authority from outside is anathema, and transgenderism is perhaps the the latest and most extreme iteration of that of that philosophy. Well, and
2: you're talking about yeah. being made in the image of God. So often, people will affirm that, and they kind of start in Genesis there, and definitely affirm that for like dignity of personhood. Mm-hmm. But then it doesn't get unpacked and broken down very right. well. Um, I feel like one of the ways in which with transgenderism that it needs to be unpacked more is just what is your agency and purpose? Like what what is your eschatological goal Mm -hmm. here? And in being made in the image of God and when you're thinking you are whoever you identify as or say that you are, you're the God of your own self. And what's the ultimate end?
3: That's an interesting point because of course the modern self has no ultimate end. Yeah. Mm. In a sense, Freud closely identifies human happiness and fulfillment with sexual activity. Mm -hmm. So actually, there is no future destiny for you. Mm -hmm. Fulfillment is always found in the here and now, Mm -hmm. primarily sexually. So Mm -hmm. you're not a teleological being Mm -hmm. chronologically. Your teleology is aimed specifically Mm -hmm. at the joy, the satisfaction, the the, the sexual moment. And do you
2: have the agency, like… Back to the transgender question, do you have the agency then to fulfill your eschatological goal in your body now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I serve as a pastor in a university town and there are-
2: Is it a big church? <laughs> well, Carl, you seem to
1: be very preoccupied with the size of the church well, I serve.
3: I'm a pastor in a university town.
1: Me that before. Well, <laughs> the reason why that is important to the discussion is that I have lots of conversations with- university students who have been raised to think of gender as something that is personally determined or Mm. felt and can easily change. And one of the things that's interesting is that when you begin to talk about just very simple biological categories, like the fact that their gender is encoded in the DNA in every single cell of their Mm. entire body, one of the things that you begin to realize, and this is what's so disconcerting among the educated class, we find this. Is that now basically biology? Just simply biology Mm. is bigotry, Mm. and and so there is this ironically anti-scientific bias in those that are now full circle. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. exactly. And so, so merely to begin talking about what's encoded on every cell in your body becomes something that's very, very distressing Mm. and, and upsetting for
3: some. And this is an interesting point because what you're pointing to there as well is the is the lack of authority that the body now has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We live in a world where we've not taken seriously the authority, I think, of, of embodiment. Mm-hmm. And I think Protestantism is potentially particularly weak on this point because, of course, for Protestantism, the things that are important to us don't necessarily require bodily presence. Right. Now, I would want to argue that the public preaching the word on the Sunday does. It's important mm-hmm. to be gathered together to hear the preaching of right. the word. But if you don't have a rich theology of community, mm-hmm. you'll think, well, I can just log on to the internet and I get right. the word preached. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a Roman Catholic, you've got to go to church right. to take mass. Exactly. Yeah. There's got to be a bodily exchange of some kind. Yeah. For Protestants, that's not necessarily intrinsically the mm-hmm. case. It so makes think, Gnosticism a lot easier. I think it makes Gnosticism easier. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a Protestant. It's not a right. criticism of Protestantism. Right. Absolutely. It's saying, I think this is a, an area where we need to be aware we are potentially mm-hmm. weak and compensate mm-hmm. for it. Yes. An emphasis on embodiment. Because bodies are important. We still relate, you know. I relate to people primarily as, as a body relating right. to another body. Right. We can tend to think of, even as Protestants, that... My body is not me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My soul is me, and my body is kind of attached to me as an right. instrument. I yeah. think what scripture teaches, you know, when when Adam looks at Eve, mm-hmm. it's interesting, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my right. flesh. There is he learns about his own personal identity when he looks at another body. Right. Mm-hmm. We are not people inhabiting bodies. Mm-hmm. We are
1: bodies. Right. And one of the things, well, two, two things that, that spring to mind where we naturally cling to this is, as you mentioned, the marriage relationship where suddenly we understand the importance of, of embodiment. And then the other thing is when you're in a hospital room with someone mm-hmm. is, is the importance of that body. We, we abandon our kind of tendencies towards Gnosticism when it comes yeah. to mm-hmm. our, our relationship with our wife and in that hospital room where the simple reality of being a body next to another body, it's oftentimes without even words, that embodiment becomes vitally important to and us.
3: The culture does occasionally acknowledge this. Remember the, the very powerful picture of Diana, Princess of Wales, visiting an AIDS patient mm-hmm. in the 80s and reaching touching. out and touching, touching. Yeah. Him. You know, and then track back to the Gospels when Jesus touches the leper. Yeah,
2: yeah Jesus well, could I was he- just going to say the incarnation. Yeah, He could right. have healed the Reveals. leper by a
3: word, but touch right. touches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is a powerful thing Mm -hmm. right Um, now i'm english don't hug me there's nothing there's nothing so great as a good firm masculine handshake (laughs) right right you meet somebody no but i
2: think even just looking to jesus in the incarnation himself shows how god affirms god did not come in a disembodied spirit Yeah, and creation Mm. and i think that's a very important point when we're talking about anthropology is that you know what what does God send for us after the fall? Yeah. A mm-hmm. body. Yes. And
3: a richer understanding of, of the body as part of who we are as persons mm-hmm. is critical for pastoral care on another level. Mm-hmm. The person with Alzheimer's disease. Right. You know, your loved one has Alzheimer's disease and mentally there's nothing left of right. the person you knew. Is it still the person you married? Right. Of course it is. Right. Because the person is the body. hmm the brain may not be firing on all cylinders anymore. But the body's. I remember that, was it Pat Robertson a few years ago yes. said, you know, you can divorce your spouse if they got Alzheimer's right. disease because they're no longer the person you married. Right. Right. What a ridiculous oh statement. Yes. Yeah. And how Deeply theologically it's incorrect. Terrible. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What Robertson was saying there essentially was, I'm a Gnostic. Mm-hmm. And once the ghost in the machine is gone, mm-hmm. you don't have to be married to that person exactly. anymore. They're just a lump of, of animated flesh mm-hmm. at this point. That is not a biblical position. Exactly. At all. One of the things, I'm glad
1: you brought that up. One of the things that, that I, I'm able to see as, as a pastor is, I, I think of one wonderful family in our church right now who, uh, the patriarch of the family, uh, has alzheimer's and uh, his mind is decaying quite rapidly god's been very kind he maintains an extremely cheerful spirit but he barely routinely doesn't know where he is why he's there or mm-hmm. or even who his children are that said um his family takes such good and loving care of him and they still delight in mm-hmm. him even when he can't remember them they right. delight in him because they they know him. They still know him. They know who he is, even if, because of the ravages of this disease, he can't know them. Mm-hmm. When they see him, his body, they see mm-hmm. their, their husband, father, mm-hmm. yeah. grandfather. Yeah. It's him.
2: Right. Well, and I think that's why it's so important to have a holistic view of our anthropology, because, and Kelly Kappick talks about this really well in his chapter in Christian Dogmatics, on anthropology that the whole person matters. Right. You know, not just their their memory, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the whole person matters. And and I think when we have that holistic view, then we can properly talk about sin. Mm-hmm. Because sin affects the whole person. Mm-hmm. Not just the mind, you know, not just the spirit even, but the body as well. Mm-hmm. And and the curse for sin. Exactly.
3: The
2: yeah. whole creation.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Carl you are currently in a fellowship at uh, Princeton University and issues related to some of the things we're talking about here are a part of the research you're doing. You're also lecturing in this area. What are you finding in your research in terms of some of these issues related to personhood that we haven't touched on yet? What would be a, a few things that you're finding?
3: I think more than anything else, the rise of of psychological categories as foundational for identity is Mm. is the key thing, Mm. this inner conviction – and that plays out, you know, it doesn't just play out in in the sexual revolution. I think you also see this somewhat in in the way race discussions are going mm-hmm. at the moment. I was discussing uh, just a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine who teaches law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. We were talking about Bob Jones University versus United States yes. of America, the 1983 Supreme Court ruling, which essentially withdrew tax breaks for Bob Jones University because the government had a... A compelling interest in racial harmony, racial reconciliation, uh, which overrode the any interests that Bob Jones University might have relative to the tax the code Bob Jones and, you know. was pursuing kind of segregationist policy at the time and, and I was debating with my friend whether that Supreme Court ruling could now be used to penalize Christian liberal arts colleges on the basis that they refuse to acknowledge gay marriage mm. or transgenderism, would it be possible to for the government to argue, without retrying the case almost, yeah. but on the basis of Bob Jones University President. in 1983, that a compelling interest in sexual harmony, mm. as society defines it, might lead to the withdrawal of tax uh, exemptions? My friend argued no, because he thinks race occupies such a unique position in American culture Mm -hmm. that it will be relatively easy to keep the two things separate, the the sexual revolution Mm -hmm. and racial issues in a court of law. I'm not so convinced. I'm not convinced. Because I think a lot of the language now being used about the race issue doesn't relate to specific legal provisions. You know, black-only restrooms, segregated buses, segregated schools, a lot of the language now refers to psychological harm and oppression. Mm -hmm. And I'm not making any comment here on whether uh, to to belittle the idea of psychological harm or oppression Mm -hmm. in those contexts at all. But I think that represents a shift in rhetoric and therefore underlying understanding of the issue from Mm -hmm. the 1950s and the 1960s. So I think the advent of psychological categories is foundational to what it means to be a human person. It's very important. Again, it's more complicated than that because there is a social framework within which these things occur. So it's never just one person Mm -hmm. thinking it up for themselves. One can be psychologically convinced that you're a a woman in a man's body and that's acceptable. Mm -hmm. Being psychologically convinced that you're Napoleon trapped In Truman's body, Mm -hmm. that's not going to be acceptable. Society is going to find that a sign of complete madness. So it's more complicated than just the individual having the right to decide who they are. I accept that. But by and large, I think the the advent of psychological categories for human identity is extremely significant, both culturally and politically. What do you make,
1: though, about the inconsistency of saying that – It's perfectly sane and healthy and acceptable for Amy to decide that she's a man, but not sane or acceptable. For you to decide that you're a, a five year old—that's
2: simple, Todd. Good brokenness oh. is better than bad brokenness. <laughs> no, it drives and out bad brokenness. Drives out bad. Drives brokenness. out bad brokenness. Yeah. Bad brokenness is bad. Period. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and the only answer is good brokenness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I would. I would have to agree with Amy. <laughs> no, I think the the point you you're making is is a sound on Todd, and i think if you step back one would say yeah it's totally inconsistent i Mm -hmm. mean for example if i decide that my arm does not belong to my body at this particular moment in time if i go and see my doctor about that he's likely to refer me to a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. if i decide that another part of my body does not belong to me i won't for matters of taste mention it Mm -hmm. and go to him and tell him i need to have it removed he'll send me to a gender reassignment person right So there is an inconsistency, and I think there you get into the issue of what Charles Taylor has dubbed the the politics of recognition, and also the the kind of the idea of um, plausibility structures, in that society does determine the range of acceptable identities at any given point in time. So being a Klansman is not an acceptable identity. Being an LGBTQ activist is. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for that are connected, I think, to patterns of pop culture, Mm -hmm. political lobbying. There are all kinds of Mm -hmm. of complex reasons that underlie that. But yes, it is is entirely inconsistent to prioritise some mental convictions over identity over over others, but that reflects, I think, deeper structures, pathologies within society as a whole well, at Well, do you point. think, mm-hmm.
2: I mean, we're talking about this kind of secular battle being psychologized, but don't you see a lot of that happening in the church as well? I mean, I'm just joking around about this good brokenness, bad sure. brokenness oh, yeah. stuff, uh, but the psychological language in the church. Yes. Yeah has really affected our anthropology as well. And this
3: is where the story of the permissive society becomes fascinating Mm -hmm. because so much of this is predicated on the idea of human happiness being found in psychological satisfaction, which connects to things like a Rogerian psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. The groups that made that kind of psychological happiness a central part of the American experiment were the churches and the synagogues of the 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. It was the churches that made the self-help, happiness is personal satisfaction thing mainstream. It was not the secular world. Yeah. There's an excellent book by uh, a guy called Charles Petigny, The Permissive Society, mm-hmm. where he traces this out in the 40s and 50s. In empir- he's a sociologist in empirical detail, yeah. showing how it was the churches that made Rogerianism popular it's that christian background ironically mm-hmm. that does so that's
1: say. fascinating i've i've read the exact same thing in a book that i'm almost done with it's called blessed it's a history of the prosperity gospel in america yeah. and it's published i forget if it's either by oxford or princeton but the author she traces the very same history so she takes she goes back to the early part of the 20th century and particularly as you get near to the 40s and 50s, as this new Pentecostal movement is beginning to be popularized and shows how this power of positive thinking yeah. movement mm-hmm. is
3: adopted wholesale by the church. Yeah. And that's what popularized it. The, the church did. The church is a driving force of the therapeutic society. Yeah. To some extent, it goes back to, you know, evangelical pietism, experientialism, mm-hmm. which emphasize psychological yeah. feelings. But Philip Reef, my sociologist, Freudian hero, mm-hmm. in his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, has a mm-hmm. great statement. He says, you know, in times past, people did not go to church to be made happy.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: They went to church to have their misery explained to them. Mm-hmm. So they didn't go to church to have their bad brokenness driven out <laughs> by good brokenness. They went to have their bad brokenness explained yeah. to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that shift... That we now see, and I've mentioned this in lectures before, the fact that churches, we don't have graveyards next mm-hmm. now. Now, there may be town planning reasons why churches aren't built by graveyards, but the fact they're not by graveyards right. removes death yeah. from the proximity of worship. When you think that the ancient Christians would meet in catacombs, not what to hide, man. but to worship in the place of the dead. Mm. near their dead loved ones. Yeah. You go to the Ossuary Chapel in Rome with all the, the, skeletons, the skeletons on the wall and right. walk in it's and terrifying. the sign says, what you are we once were, what we are you will become. It's terrifying. That's, it's terrifying, but it's not therapeutic. Right. It's not therapeutic. And it's I real. Think, yeah, I it's think true.
2: it's right there on the in uh-huh. the walls. Uh-huh. The
3: church's failure to yeah you know, it's another failure by the church. The church's failure to realize that person is not primarily and fundamentally psychological. yeah happiness is not primarily your experience here and now. Satisfaction is not to be found in this world but it' to be found in the next world. Mm-hmm. I think all of these things have made us complicit yeah in the culture that's given us transgenderism right and I think when faced with transgenderism, the first reaction of the church should not be to scream and shout mm-hmm. at it, but it is it I Lord. Right. Is anything right. we do in our church on Sunday mm. have we failed in some way to be a light shining in darkness? Mm-hmm. And are we now paying the price? Exactly. Have the ways that
1: we've preached and taught and worshipped
3: given license yeah. unwittingly,
1: yeah. but but still license nevertheless for that for the thinking that gave yeah. birth
3: to this. If century. all you do is sing happy clappy songs on mm-hmm. a Sunday, you present an unfortunately inappropriate vision of what Christianity is all about. Because
1: life becomes about my psychic wellness yeah. mm-hmm. at yeah. any given moment. Therefore, yeah.
3: right. Yeah. I remember being at a Bible college and preaching. Before I preached, we sang this song and I just couldn't sing it. And at some point in the song, the, the verse was about resting my head on Jesus' chest oh, and his heart beating. <laughs> That struck me, A, as a bit homoerotic, so I I (laughs) couldn't go there. Give me a break. True. No, no, it's true. I couldn't couldn't sing it either. I think it's a very distasteful way of expressing it. I do think it's very distasteful. And I was not saying that that for a cheap laugh. I was saying I genuinely (laughs) think that's inappropriate for that reason. Mm -hmm. But I also think it presented a very inappropriate view of what the Christian life is about.
2: Mm. Yeah.
3: And. I mean, Amy, sorry. Are you, are you going to wrap up for us? Uh,
2: no, I'm not wrapping up for us. How is, As how a is, matter of how fact, is, how I is, demand respect. How is the teacher? The teacher is wonderful.
1: Wonderful. Yeah? Good. Are Good. you still canning beans?
2: No, mm, no. Just cunning us, I think. There's much beams. trouble we're going to get in over this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not wrapping up. I demand uh, we, respect. We should, you guys wrap up uh, with should, an apology. Uh, exactly.
3: Anyway, well, we're glad you are able to join us today on Modification of Spin. Uh, it's been fun to out Amy uh, us using the pen name and Voskamp. We uh, hope the discussion has been relatively useful, at least in Parts. we hope that you'll visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where we will be offering a book of Amy's poems. As a it... No, no, sorry. <laughs> we will be offering A A Hukumah's book created in God's image. It's an old book, but a classic on what it is to be made in the image of God. Please visit the website and enter for a chance to win that. And if you've appreciated Amy's poetry, please make a donation. We want to keep her writing these quality verses. Thank you.
0: Here Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... But the fact is, is that
1: Christianity is a supernatural religion. We believe in a supernatural world, and we believe that there is this being referred to as Satan. We believe that there are such beings
3: as demons. As soon as people start talking to me about demons today, I'm beginning to think, okay, I'm dealing with a loony here. But that's a cultural reaction. That's not a biblically informed reaction. I think we need to be aware of the cultural baggage we bring. If
2: you're waking up at 3 a.m. and you can't go back to sleep, well, it's, you know, spiritual warfare.
0: We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
2: Was that, yoga, yoga that was pose. a yoga position he was there, <laughs> Be careful. You might invite the spirits. Mm. Energy. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs>
3: All right.